Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. We're going to get started here. And of course, our, our Torah portion today is Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha. It's kind of an odd turn of phrase, even in Hebrew. It's like, go for yourself. So many times we do things for other people, for the benefit of other people. But there comes a point in your relationship with the Holy One where this is something you have to do for yourself. You have to understand it yourself. You have to perceive it yourself. You can't do that for other people. You know, there's some things you can do for other people. There's help you can lend to other people, but especially when it pertains to walking the land of Israel and understanding the ancient covenant and how you as an individual relate to that covenant. It's one of those things you want to be completely present in the moment. You want to go for yourself, not for anyone else. Because if if you're grounded in it yourself, then you'll be able to stand through the trials and tribulations. And a lot of those trials and tribulations, you're going to feel like you're completely alone in the world, that there's nobody who understands you. There's nobody who who really gets you. Um, you're going to have questions of the Holy One. Like, is this really where you intended to bring me today? You're going to have those moments. And to prepare yourself for those moments, you really need to take that opportunity to go for yourself. There's something in the land to do that's going to bring you completely into a friendship. That's the difference in the relationship. He called Abraham a friend. It's going to bring you into a friendship with the Holy One. And so many times we'll we'll not stick with a stranger or an acquaintance when things get a little, you know, they rock a little bit, they get a little bit out of balance or you know, there might be a little offense here or there. If it's a total stranger or just an acquaintance, somebody we're not really committed to, we move on. But if it's a friend, if it's a family member, often we will linger and give second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth and 70 chances, right? And this is the the, the degree of friendship you want with the Holy One. Not that you're asking for that many chances, but sometimes you need to give the Holy One that many chances. It's so hard to understand his plans sometimes. I think of Abraham, he and, and Sarah, all the things they went through. How many times during that period do you think they, they questioned within themselves? Did we really hear from him? Does he really like us? Is, is I mean, he brought us here because he likes us. You're going to have those same moments like they did. But if you can go for yourself, lech lecha, develop that friendship with him, then, then you'll stick with him. Even in the places where you're you're thinking, I don't understand at all what you're doing with me right now, but I'm going to hang in there because we're friends. We're friends. We have lots of relationships with the Holy One, a king, a father, a sovereign, uh, a healer, a provider. There's so many, you know, all the names that he has, they describe to us different relationships we can have, but we, we're children of Abraham. We want to be his friends. We want him to call us friend. And there is a way that we can develop that friendship. It's a way of developing faith. And Lech Lecha is going to describe to us exactly how we develop that friendship. Okay. And so I'm going to call this frankincense, myrrh, and the great gift return. 
I know most of us have, have gotten gifts before. Maybe they didn't fit, weren't the right thing, and we had to return them. Well, there's something similar going on. Out here among the nations, there is a people, and they don't quite fit where they are. They've been put where they are on purpose, but nevertheless, where they are, they're they're just not fitting in. And so they're going to have to be returned. They're going to have to be returned uh, to their rightful place. And that's what we want to look at today. So let's take a look at one of the texts from the Torah portion. This is Genesis 5, 5 through 7. And as I read through a few of these passages, see if you see something in common. And so he took Abraham outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So I know that passage is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. He believed Adonai and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Faith is one of those things we may not have done everything that we'll be called to do yet, but yet we believe and we will follow because we believe he is able to complete in us and perfect in us the work that he has started. And so we get credited for righteousness we haven't even done yet. And this is what Yeshua extends to us. He extends to us his righteousness. Even as we're still learning how to walk in it, it's still put onto our account because the same way we have faith in him, he's extending credit, faith to us that we will walk in his righteousness. And the point of this, remember the stars represent, in some cases, not in every case, in some cases, the stars represent the descendants of Abraham, of which you should be one. Are you saved? Have you made a proclamation of faith in Yeshua as the Messiah? Are you walking in his word? Then you're a descendant of Abraham. You're walking in the faith of Abraham. You believed the gospel and The rest of the works were credited to your account as righteousness, even as you're learning to walk in them. And so ultimately, what is this promise about? It's about descendants. And he says, I'm bringing you out of Ur. I'm bringing you out of the the nation where you were born. And I'm giving you this land to possess it. I'm transplanting you. I'm giving you a new address. And so the, the focus of Lech Lecha is for you to understand the land. Understand the land. What are you supposed to do when you go to Israel? Understand the land. What are you supposed to do when you read the word? Part of it, understand the land. Know who you are and understand the land. And so where it says he believed, the the word there in its context, it context is going to be vehet amin. Vehet amin. The the Shoresh is going to be Aman, Aman, believed. He believed, Aman. You may have heard that song, Anime Amin, Anime Amin. It's a song about Mashiach. It's, I believe, I believe, I believe. If you're a female, you say, Anime Amina, Anime Amina, I believe. If you're a child of Abraham, learn to say, Anime Amin, or Anime Amina. It's your Emunah, that would be the noun, your faith. Emunah, faith, the verb aman. 
right? So faith is connected to understanding the land, that it is a possession for the descendants of Abraham. Now, this is a longer passage. This is from Genesis 17, 1 through 8. And it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So twice he names the multitude of nations. So we know that as we're understanding the covenant, part of the covenant is Abraham will have lots of descendants, as many as the stars, and they will become a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. There it is. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And here it comes again. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, is promised to Abraham's descendants as an everlasting possession. Well, we know that that's been a little off and on through the last few thousand years. Remember, it's conditional upon the covenant. Living in the land is conditional upon an agreement to and a commitment to a faithfulness to the covenant. That's part of it. That's what it means to be a descendant of Abraham. So twice here, we see the land as a possession is part of this agreement. So Genesis uh, 13, 17, this is important. He says, arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Right. So this land was specifically given to Abraham and his descendants. Right. Now, we could trace that. We could go down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. That's not what I want to do today. What I want us to do is to understand the relationship of the nations to the descendants of Abraham. You say, well, aren't they one and the same? Because he was promised that they would become a multitude of nations. It would be kings in those nations descended from him. True. But even though it might be a hidden work, it's hidden. It's not apparent that many kings of the nations have descended from Abraham, even though it's possible and even probable. Knowing how human beings mingle and so forth, it's entirely possible that there's descendants of Abraham sitting on thrones somewhere. But I suspect that in the millennial reign, when King Messiah rules and reigns from Jerusalem and he dispatches his faithful out into the nations to proclaim the word, and to set up his rulership in the nations, I suspect that's when maybe most of the descendants of Abraham will have those recognized titles, say, as a king or a ruler over a nation, because they're there to tutor, to coach, to teach the Torah and the word, going out from Jerusalem to the nations. So there are nations, 
and they're the descendants of Abraham who were promised a specific piece of land. And that's what all the trouble's about right now, a specific piece of land. And who is thought to be the rightful inheritors? And who is you know, claiming to be rightful inheritors? So let's take a little bit from the Haftorah portion, Isaiah 41, 1, and then we're going to skip down to verse 8. It says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Remember, there's a silence of about half an hour in the book of Revelation. It might be related to this. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Right? I don't know who would even want to do that. Who would want to approach the Holy One and say, judge me now? But he's inviting them. Come on, let's have judgment now. You all want to talk about my people? You all want to talk about my land? There will come a point where he will say, shut up and come here. We're going to have a judgment. And we will see after that judgment who you think my people and my land are for. So let's go down to verse 8. He says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, right? We might say that Israel, for a couple thousand years, they, kind of like when we're kids, we get sent to the corner to sit in a chair and think about our behavior or to stand in the corner and think about our behavior until we're uh, sufficiently repentant that we can join the family again. This is that on a bigger scale, (laughs) much bigger scale. So he says, "I, I scatter the descendants of Abraham out to the farthest corners of the earth, but you're still my servants. I've not cast you off. I'm with you no matter where you are, and I will strengthen you. And, you know, as we go on through Isaiah, we realize he intends to keep his promise. He's going to bring them back to this land. But I want to look at who the the coastlands are. Sometimes we'll read a word and we'll just keep reading because like, I don't really know what it's talking about. Is it talking about the beach or what? Well, these coastlands are challenged. Approach for judgment. Come here. He says, I want to talk to you. So let's go to the first mention. What is a coastland? Because he's contrasting the coastlands with his own people, their place with his place, the place of the nations with the place of the descendants of Abraham. So it's kind of a weird word. It's E. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the city of I in the scripture. Like, who picked that particular name out because it's so short, you could confuse it with a lot of things. So like I-E, this is E. Uh, E-im is going to be the plural, coastlands, E-im. So E is a coast or a country. That's the thing to remember. It doesn't have to be an island, which is how it's sometimes translated. It can be a country. It can just be dry land. Uh, it can be an island. So the, the E-im Let's look and see if we can get a better idea with this challenge to the coastline. Is he is he talking about an island or is he talking about something much bigger? So again, we go to the first mention of the coastlands. Let's go to Genesis 10.5. It says, from these coastlands, these eem, 
of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So these Iim, who were being invited for judgment and being contrasted with the apportionment of the descendants of Abraham, we can see in its first mention, what are we supposed to understand about the coastlands, the Iim? Basically, that it's the nations of the earth, according to their language, their families, their clans, they have an assigned place. They were separated into their lands, and that's their assigned location. Those are the nation's assignments. Here's been the historic problem. Since Genesis 10.5, they've not necessarily respected their assignments, and they've certainly not respected other people's assignments. It's, it's been an age of total war since the creation, and then again since the flood. The problem is the Iim, the coastlands, they want to reassign the borders. And one thing they want to do is they want to absorb the descendants of Abraham. They want to assimilate them in and make them just like them. Number one, that's not their authority to do. It's not their authority to redraw the boundaries. And it's certainly not under their authority to try to absorb the children of Abraham and make them just like them. Where all are equal, each has an assigned uh, role. And if you want to be called a descendant of Abraham, there's a requirement. And we read that. We read that in just the little samples that we read. You have to accept the covenant. You have to be part of the covenant people. And part of being the covenant people is understanding there is a covenant land that is separate from the coastlands, because this land is going to be characterized by obedience to the covenant. It's a high level of holiness compared to what's going on on out in the coastlands. That's why these coastlands are having the Torah and the word taken out to them. And that's why they're having to come up in the millennial reign, say at the Feast of Sukkot, for further instruction. They're learning obedience to the covenant. They're not in that 100% engaged in the covenant. doesn't mean they can't be. Right now, they certainly aren't. But in the millennial reign, there's going to be a change of heart. And they're going to, those who have been offended by, those who have ridiculed the covenant, those who have tried to restructure the covenant, uh, those who have tried to stamp out the covenant in the judgments with the coastlands, these folks are going to be filtered. And what's going to be left are those who, it says, did not go up against Jerusalem to make war against it. Now they're ready to hear. If they weren't ready to hear before, now they will be. So there's a people, there's a covenant, and there's a specific land. And it's not in outer space. It's a specific land with specific boundaries, and those boundaries might be a little bit different in different time periods, but they're there. So in the Messianic reign, that thousand years, the nations will retain their assigned territories. I suspect that the, the modern boundary lines of civilization that we're familiar with, the way that our globes look when we spin them around, I suspect those boundaries are going to be redrawn. And the boundaries that were set after the flood, like we read, he says, okay, this is your territory, this is your language, this is your people. I have a suspicion they're going to revert back to that. It, it could redraw a lot of things in the world. 
Um, how is that possible after all the mixing and conquering and wiping out? And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there won't be that many people left in the world at that time. There won't be enough left to argue about it, probably. Wherever Messiah wants to draw it, I suspect he'll go right back to the scripture, right back to the word. And so we say, okay, you're telling me the descendants of Abraham, they have a specific land that is associated with living under the covenant. But you say, I don't think I can trace my my ancestry literally back to Abraham. I don't know. Well, we get lost in there. Maybe I did some DNA. Maybe there's a possibility there was there was a Jew somewhere in my background. That's not important because Galatians 3.29 explains it. It says, if, remember, this is a conditional phrase, if and then. There's criteria. And if you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, this is written to the Galatians. The fellowship, presumably, they are not Jewish by descent. But he's telling them, you also, if you belong to Messiah, he's the, he was the door that you came through to become a child of Abraham. And to this day, when there's conversions to Judaism, the convert is referred to as a son of Abraham or a daughter of Sarah. They take on Abraham and Sarah as their parents. Right. <clears throat> and then the short form, you're all familiar with this scripture, Ezekiel 47, 21 through 23. It says, so you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. And this is in the millennial reign. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves and among the aliens who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. And they shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And in the tribe with which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. So Ezekiel envisions in the millennial reign that there will be lots of people who will have joined themselves to the covenant. It says they're bringing, uh, they're bringing up sons of Israel. What does that mean? They're producing the fruit of the word. They're passing this fruit of the word along. It's, it's transforming them. And he says, these are also entitled to an inheritance in the land. In fact, he says, give him his inheritance as though it's understood that he can inherit in the land, right? And he doesn't have to belong to a specific tribe. He can simply choose one, settle down, and he's going to receive an inheritance. So how do we get back? Right now, it's a big mess. How do we get back? We know how some people get back. And again, it's by bloodline. But this route into the land is thought to be prophesied in the Song of Songs because we know there's lots of people out there who are going to be included who may not have a pedigree. And according to the Song of Songs prophecy and, and some other uh, passages of prophecy, it's going to be the same route from the north that was taken by Avram when he journeyed to the land of Canaan from Haran or Haran. So from Haran, which is going to be in the north, to the north of Israel, what we're going to see in the text, his journeys took him to the mountain of myrrh and frankincense. As he journeys down, he in the end ends up on Mount Moriah. We know that he took tithes to the, the king of Shalem, Melchizedek, and then later he takes Isaac to Mount Moriah. This is considered the mountain of myrrh and frankincense because, of course, the myrrh and the frankincense were offered in the temple services later. And then in the time 
of the 12 tribes as they were camping in the wilderness. Remember, Bilam was hired to curse them and he couldn't. Instead, he gets one of the most beautiful prophecies in the Torah and in the Bible itself. He sees them encamped and he says, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your tabernacles, Israel. And so there's a song called Matovu, how lovely. We, we sing that each week in Shabbat service. It's a prophecy of return. Because in that prophecy, Bilam saw Israel with other blemishes that we know they had up to that point and continued having uh, till they reached the end of that 40 years. He looks at them and he sees this gift. He sees this sacrifice without a blemish. He sees a people dwelling in perfection. So as we work through the the prophecy, and we'll read the passage too, so you'll know what I'm even talking about at this point. But we know that uh, Mount Hermon and Sinir, and sometimes it's pronounced Shnir, may be the same mountain. Remember, these are up in the north. Remember, Mount Hermon is the one that has the snow up on its peak. You can kind of baby ski up there in the wintertime. But both of these mountain ranges are part of the the northern range of mountains that border pre-millennial Israel, right? That mountain range is called Taurus Amanas. And you can even hear in the Latin, the the mountain of Amman. But that's, here's the passage. Now this this will make more sense. It says, until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, I will go my way, to the mountain of myrrh, and to the hill of frankincense. That's thought to allude to the Temple Mount. And here's what he says. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amman, from the summit of Sinir, and Hermon, from the dens of leopards, from the mountains of leopards. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, so we're not going to be able to do all of it, but we're going to give it a try. Let's focus on just verse 8 here, uh, Song of Songs 4.8. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. Right? So um, the, the mountains mentioned there are Amana, Sinir, Hermon. And it's a place of lions and leopards, which should sound familiar. So when he says, journey down with me, my beloved, the bridegroom's calling to the beloved. He says, journey down with me, which is Tashuri. Tashuri. Um, it's very similar to our Torah portion. Avraham is told, Lech Lecha. In, in other words, come on, get up and walk for yourself. Walk around. Start inspecting it, Abraham, because your offspring are going to possess this land. So you need to walk and take a look. It's a similar command here, Tashuri. Shur is, it says it's identical with the uh, idea of going around for inspection. It means to spy out, to survey. And it can be to lurk around, to survey something for evil or for good, to care for something to lay in wait, to look, to observe, to perceive, in other words, to understand. 
We say, okay, they're being told, Israel is being told to journey down. They're supposed to come across these mountains. And of course, we know the destination is Jerusalem. The destination is the land of Israel itself. So Tashuri, the, the root of it being sure, which means to, to inspect it, observe it. Let's go again to the first mention. And that'll put us, that'll give us a good GPS. What does he mean? Journey down with me, observe with me, survey with me, understand with me. Well, it goes right back to that passage we just talked about, where Bilam was called to curse the 12 tribes, and instead all he can do is bless them. And so it, it, it wouldn't hurt if you read the whole passage there in Numbers 24, because the, there's beautiful specifics about it. But I just want to focus here on this um, observation of Israel as journeying down. I, I want to find out how are they going to get back? We see as they're encamped here, they're preparing to go in. How can we prepare to go in? How can we see what Bilam saw? How can we see that perfection? When sometimes we definitely don't feel perfect. Well, Numbers 23, 9, Bilam said, as I see him from the top of the rocks and I look at him from the hills. Okay, there's that word again. Uh, sure, which is to observe, to regard, to understand. I look at him from the hills. Behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. In other words, they have their assigned territory. The coastlands have their assigned territory, but this is a people, these 12 tribes dwell apart from the nations. Their territory is not like any other nation, right? And here's what he says about Israel in Numbers 23, 21. Remember, he's looking at Israel, and this is very close, because remember, the, the song says, you were altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. Well, it's hard to imagine the children of Israel returning without any blemish. But here's what he says. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him. That's exactly what was promised to Abraham. I'll be with you. And it says, and the shout of a king is among them. So how is that going to be accomplished? Bilam can't see any iniquity or wickedness in the tribes of Israel as they're, they're camped, preparing to go in. How are they going to accomplish that being a beautiful darling without a blemish? Well, the clue is in the text. He says, the shout of a king is among them. It is the work of this king that's going to be vital to their achieving this perfection. And what does he tell us about King Messiah? Well, as we go to verse 17, Numbers 24, 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him. There's our word again. Sure. I observe. I perceive. I understand. I spy out. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Shaped. So he refers to him as a star and a scepter, right? He's a star. Uh, again, the descendants of Abraham were called stars. So he will come from a tribe of Jacob. We know he came from the tribe of Judah. And it says a scepter. So there's a royalty associated with this King Messiah. He has a scepter of authority. 
And of course, we know the, the kingship was assigned to the tribe of Judah. That's what joins these two things. So again, let's keep looking for the word, sure, to observe, to inspect, to lurk. Well, there's a, a kind of ominous prophecy to Israel when they're misbehaving, when they're getting ready to be driven out of the land. Hosea 13, 7 says, so I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. So rather than this being a positive thing, where it's the observing Israel in a state of righteousness and beauty, when they start following after other gods, he says, okay, the lion and the leopard that are always lurking around trying to devour them, I'm going to be like that. That's how I'm going to observe them. I'm going to lie in wait and I'm going to uh, judge them. But it's also proof where it says to lie in wait in the context of their exile. It's also proof that they are still under observation. Remember, he says, I will be with you. Even out there in those nations, I will be with you. So even though Adonai sent them away for idolatry, he's still lurking to redeem them from exile. He's always waiting to redeem them from exile. And if you'll remember all the lessons we had on the four winds and the four beast kingdoms and so forth, we know that the first beast kingdom was the lion of Babylon. And we know there was the bear of Persia, Medea. Finally, the leopard of Greece. And then Rome adopts all of those abominations and perfects them. And eventually the, the iron legs of Rome go down into the iron and clay feet that are standing on the world today. That influence has spread all over the world today. So whereas the beast kingdoms were lurking to try to absorb Israel and redraw their boundaries, nevertheless, the Holy One, he's also lurking. He's trying to redeem them, bring them back, and set their boundaries again to defend those boundaries on their behalf. But it has to be connected with repentance. Return is attached to repentance. So let's look again here at these mountains and hills of Lebanon that he's describing as the route that the returnees are going to take. So Hosea, again, uh, and this is going to be chapter 14, verses 4 through 8. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has been turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. Remember, dew can stand for resurrection. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. All right, this in the context, it's speaking of the transformation of Israel. When they are healed from their apostasy, they are going to have the qualities of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, the fragrance of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. In other words, those who attach themselves to Israel, they will prosper. Oh, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. There's our word again. Sure, I'm observing you, I'm watching you, I'm lurking to bring you back. If you will repent and put away your idols, I will bring you back. He says, I am like a luxuriant cypress, also from Lebanon. From me, 
comes your fruit. So that's another beautiful use of this, I'm lurking to look after you. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but the Holy One is always watching and lurking. If we will repent, if we will put away our idols, he starts the process of bringing us back and making us beautiful and perfect. So this symbolism of Lebanon, if we are supposed to come through Lebanon, the question might be, does he mean literal Lebanon? Or is he talking about the principles of Lebanon that he teaches us in scripture? So let's just look at some of the symbolism of Lebanon. It can refer to the temple. Because remember, the bones of the temple, the, the timbers were made from the cedars of Lebanon. And in the millennial reign, Lebanon is um, actually part of Israel itself. The borders extend pretty far north. Uh, if you kind of compare it with a modern map, you can see how far north. But the, the territory of Dan will go much higher in the, the millennial reign. We know that Lebanon or Haran. It was a testing place. Jacob had to go to the land of Levan, and it was a place of exile for testing. And then he brought his 11 sons plus one, I guess, in the oven, uh, brings him back to the land from the land of the north. It can also relate to the pride of nations because it's related to the height of the cedars. And so it can be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, the, the beauty of Adonai and serving him can be like the height of the cedars in Lebanon. But it's, remember, the nations are always trying to put themselves in that place because of pride, which is a a negative aspect. It can also allude to very Eden-like beauty and pleasure. Those are some of the, the contextual symbols of Lebanon. We also know That in that mountain range we're talking about, that at this point divides uh, the northern border of Israel from Syria and Lebanon, that we have Mount Hermon there, and those mountain ranges where snows, as they melt, will flow into the Galilee. The rains will go into the Galilee, and it will uh, water the length. It will stretch the length of the land of Israel all the way down to the Dead Sea. So it's giving life to the entire uh, tribal territories, we might say. Um, also, if you've ever had a, never had a chance to read or watch the teaching on Luz and Beit El as the spring uh, from which the, the waters begin to flow into the Galilee, uh, it's over that border in Lebanon, modern Lebanon right over that border, but in the millennial reign, it will be part of the boundaries of Israel. But that mountain range is significant because so much of the water runoff, again, is going to flow into the Galilee. And remember, Galilee of the Nations is one of the nicknames of the Galilee. So we know even though in Ezekiel's vision that Israel's holdings will extend all the way to the river Euphrates in the east, The passage we're reading that's discussing how these descendants of Abraham will return, it focuses on Lebanon. It focuses on the north, we might say. And again, those ancient boundaries, Haran, Aram, Lebanon, Tyr, Sidon, which were city-states, these things are going to kind of blur together in prophecy. But as we're looking at that general area in the north, the sages say 
you know, from a scholarly standpoint, those mountains would be considered north and west. And uh, it's also the area from which Avram retrieved Lot, which we're particularly interested in right now because he got the hostages back, Baruch Hashem. He retrieved the hostages. But when the kings took away the hostages that they kidnapped, they ran up north into this area and Avram arms himself and his men and they go after them. And it says they pursued them all the way as far as the territory of Dan. And if you remember in the wilderness, it was Dan who held the banner of those three tribes in the northern encampment. Right. So I'm just going to remind you something. It might have been a year or so ago. But when we were doing the four winds study, we talked about what is the significance of the four directions. And one of the the expectations is that Messiah is thought to be hidden in the north. North is Tzafun, but Tzafun also means hidden. And so the the rabbis say Messiah is hidden in the north, right? It's it's a way of saying Messiah is hidden right now. Well, where are these people going to come from? They're going to come from the north. So in essence, they're hidden with Messiah. And then they say that the divine presence and we know the divine presence is everywhere, but we're talking about that special, you know, that what we were talking about, I'm lurking, I'm observing you, I'm hovering over you, watching you. The divine presence is thought to be concealed in the West with the exiles. They said the exiles went West. And so he sent his presence after them to watch over them, kind of to, to lurk and to wait for their repentance, to see if Ephraim would put away their idols. So you put those two symbols together, north and west. And so you have a people who are hidden with Messiah and the divine presence is lurking. Um, It's also concealed, but it's watching over them in order to bring them home. So are we talking about they're literally coming over those mountains or will the, the gate be opened through some action that occurs in those mountains? That's the question. I don't know the answer. We this is we're on a wait and see basis right now. So let's look at this mountain. The peak of Amana is thought to refer to Abraham because he was the beginning of our covenant faith. Remember, faith is Emuna. And in the messianic times, it's thought to be referencing the return of Abraham's exiled children back to the kingdom of King Messiah. So in the same way that Abraham's emunah was accounted to him as righteousness, it's also going to be reckoned to his descendants. Because, and this again is quoted often, even in the New Testament, uh, Habakkuk, Chavkuk 2.4, it says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. In other words, his soul, we often say our, our soul is saved. What's actually going on? The word Yeshua is in a a constant process of saving our souls. It says, you know, the, the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. So there's a salvation that goes on at the beginning, but then there's this blemish free bride that if we continue to walk in the righteousness of Yeshua, if we continue to live by our faith, then at the end of the journey, that perfection. That beauty, that being without blemish, that's demonstration of our emunah. We live by our faith. And whose faith is that? It's the faith in the righteousness of Yeshua, not in our own. So the play on word there with the manah 
is, you could say it also means her faith. Whose faith? Well, Abraham's children, the daughters of Israel, the daughters of Jerusalem that are spoken of in the Song of Songs. They are going to return to the peak of their faith. It's, it's referred to like when it, when it says the peak, it's Rosh, the peak of the mountain, Rosh, the head of her faith. Well, who is the head of our faith? That star of Jacob, King Messiah. It's through the work of King Messiah that Abraham's children are going to be able to walk in her faith, that they're going to be able to cross these peaks and return to the land. So let's look at Matthew 2, 10 through 12. I think this is an incredible connection. I think I want to do a little bit more with this eventually, but it helps us to understand these three particular gifts that the wise men brought to Yeshua and his mother. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Miriam, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. They know he's a king. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So they see the star rise from Jacob, the King Messiah. They know he will hold the scepter that he is the king, which of course is not sitting so well with King Herod. What does the gold represent? Remember Exodus 28, 11, that the names of the 12 tribes were etched into stones and then set in gold filigree on the shoulders of the high priest. So the tribes are in settings of gold. What else is going on here? Remember, return with me from the mountain of frankincense and myrrh. Our, our, our destination is the Temple Mount. Remember, the, the incense represented the prayers of the righteous. And then thirdly, Herod was going to be a problem here. We know eventually Herod was responsible for the slaughter of the boys in, in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. Herod was a double Edomite. He was descended, he was an Edomian. He was from Edom, and they were the products of forced conversion. But he's also joined himself. Remember, Edom in modern times is thought to be Rome. I mean, that's the, the traditional way of looking at it. And so he was both an Edomian, and he's working within the Red Roman B system. And so he knew he was double trouble, and he had to get rid of this King Messiah because all the prophecies. I mean, keep go back, keep reading Isaiah, Ezekiel. Messiah is going to destroy Edom. Who is this coming from Botsra with his garment dyed in blood? King Messiah. He's going to destroy Edom. He's going to destroy the beast, the red beast, and there's no doubt about it. So again, here's our text, and maybe some of this will make more sense now. Come with me, Tashuri, journey down, lurk, <laughs> observe. From Lebanon, my bride, may you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down. Come down from your, your exile. Journey down from the summit, from the head of Amana, from the, the origins of your faith, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of the lepers. Get out of those beast kingdoms that are trying to absorb you and redraw the boundaries. And this come with me being said twice is thought to refer to the Holy One saying to Israel, come with me. You're not listening to me. You've fallen into idolatry. Come with me to Babylon. 
and the lion beast of Babylon, he was with them. And they've been in exile pretty much ever since, you know, a short period of success, and then back into exile. And so even though Israel was exiled into the kingdoms of the beast, Adonai was with her. And so we can see how Lebanon is the metaphor for the temple in that context, that, yeah, come with me, come to Babylon. And then in the second great exile, the diaspora, he will still be with her. Come with me, come with me. He's still with her, but he's also bidding us to come with him back to the temple. It's come with me, return from the beast kingdoms, come from the lion, come from the bear, come from the leopard. And what are those? That's that Roman conglomerate beast that Daniel saw. It's all those. It's it's one beast. It's one idol. It's one figure that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And that beast extends around the whole world. So in the places of their exile, they are going to reach a summit of emunah. They're going to reach a summit of faith in their exile. And they're going to begin to prepare to return to their inheritance and to a rebuilt temple. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.